Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, February 22nd. I'm Tom Tilley and very excited to tell you that today we have an interview with the Aussie scientist who was part of the WHO team that went to Wuhan to investigate the origin of the coronavirus. Here he is explaining what it was like going to the wet market at the centre of the first cluster. It was, you know, really small little stalls, terrible drainage, poor quality ventilation, uh, obviously very crowded. They get about, apparently used to have about 10,000 people a day visiting. So it's a perfect sort of recipe for an outbreak of something. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation. We'll ask him whether it was really the independent investigation we'd all been hoping for. First, Annika Smethurst is here with the big news of the day. Tom, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. You're feeling well today? No fevers or chills? And are you allergic to anything at all? Just, all right, well, let's get to it. So we're going to go into your left arm. COVID-19 vaccinations kicked off in Australia yesterday and that was the PM, Scott Morrison, getting his jab. Yeah, very exciting. He was the second person to get the Pfizer vaccination. The first was 84-year-old aged care resident Jane Malashak. Then after the Prime Minister was the Chief Health Officer, Paul Kelly. Speaking at the vaccination hub in northwest Sydney, Mr Morrison thanked healthcare workers and praised health authorities for their efforts in developing the vaccine program. What we're demonstrating today is our confidence. I am supremely confident in the the expert process that has been led to get us to this day. So it is a pretty exciting moment, isn't it, Annika? It's incredible, isn't it? You think of how we spoke about the virus over the past year, from the development, early indications we might get a jab, and now it's finally here. It feels pretty good. When you get the vaccine will depend on your age, your health status and your occupation. Hotel quarantine workers are getting it first, which is great because that's where some of the recent problems have come from. Of course, also the elderly and healthcare workers are at the front of the queue. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily stop us being able to spread the virus, but it will weaken its effects so that people don't get quite as sick. And Facebook is reportedly back at the negotiating table after copying global backlash for implementing the news ban on its platform here in Australia. 17 million Australians are on Facebook and the social media giant last Thursday stopped users from being able to view or share news. But the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, says he's been back in talks with Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to try and broker a deal. The rest of the world's eyes are looking upon Australia because they know that this is a very important issue. I mean, we are in the middle of a digital revolution. Facebook is also reportedly negotiating with a number of media organisations, with nine papers reporting a sticking point over a poison pill clause where the deals would be off if the government legislation goes through. Yeah, so it's interesting to see the way Facebook are reacting after them uh, really pulling the trigger on that blunt move last week, which saw critical health and community safety sites taken down along with the news sites. Facebook's vice president of public policy for the Asia-Pacific region, Simon Milner, said at the weekend he's sorry for the mistakes that were made in implementing the ban. Yeah, so these negotiations are back on, Annika, with the government and also the media companies. How will this affect what happens in Parliament? Because uh, Facebook pulled the trigger once the legislation got voted on in the House of Reps. If there are changes as a result of these negotiations, will that legislation and the Senate vote get slowed down? Will the amendments have to go back to the House of Reps? Look, a lot of the time we get to the Senate and there are some changes. So it shouldn't change it 
you know, too much if they tinker around the edges. You can just put up, um, I guess, amendments and then it's a pretty easy path through and, and back through all the sort of houses and levels it needs to go through. But interestingly here, it has support from Labor and a lot of the crossbench anyway. So we've seen a lot of sort of sticking points in the last few years with governments not having control of the crossbench. It doesn't really matter here. If you've got Labor and you've got the government and you've got at least a few crossbenchers, it's likely to pass Parliament. Okay, so what will the timing of it be? Do you think it will get through this week and how does the calendar look going forward? Yeah, look, it does look like it will get through this week and that's because, as I say, ultimately most members of Parliament believe that there is a monopoly here with the social media giants and that they should be in some way paying for news. So, yes, they might be able to tinker with it down the track, but in principle this is something most people in Parliament agree with. So I don't think they're going to get any big changes. It just depends how, I guess, Facebook react to this and whether their bluff has been called and they turn around and undo that media ban. And the former Liberal Party staffer Brittany Higgins, who alleges she was raped inside Parliament House in Canberra, is expected to make a formal complaint to police within days. Miss Higgins has said she was assaulted in the office of Senator Linda Reynolds, who was Minister for Defence Industry at the time. In very interesting timing, um, it's believed Miss Higgins will take the complaint to police as early as Wednesday, which is the same day that Senator Reynolds is scheduled to give a big speech at the National Press Club. Annika, you actually are involved at the National Press Club. What do you make of the timing of this and how is this going to go down on Wednesday? Yeah, I'm on the board of the club and look, I can say that these things are locked in a long way out. We have meetings, we decide who gets up. So it's just fortuitous timing, I guess, for the at least the press gallery, not necessarily Linda Reynolds, that she will have to face the press club. And look, she is somebody that doesn't do a lot of speaking publicly, which is unusual for a defence minister. They're usually a more prominent position within the government. So I imagine it'll be a huge sellout, great success for the club as someone that's on the board, but also much watched um, around Australia given, I guess, her reaction to this and, and the consequences in the last few days. Yeah, I imagine she won't be looking forward to this speech on no. Wednesday. <laughs> no, um, I wouldn't have thought so, Tom. Great booking for the press club. But yeah, also, I guess, a, a great chance for accountability because journalists can really ask, you know, lots of questions, in, including follow-ups to each other's questions at the press club. And there is still question marks around how this was dealt with. Um, there was also an additional element on the weekend where the Australian newspaper reported a, a second woman alleging rape by the same man who allegedly raped Brittany Higgins. And that raises questions about, you know, whether if the first one was dealt with properly, the second one may not have actually happened. So lots of very... Um, intense questions that can be asked of the minister on Wednesday. Yeah, that second incident happened after this alleged perpetrator had left Parliament. But as you say, it does raise more concerns about the handling of this incident. And we don't always get these people in front of us. Sometimes they have press conferences, but often to get answers, you've got to submit questions by email and you don't necessarily get to stand in front of them and, as you say, ask those important follow-up questions so they can't wriggle out of it. So this will be highly viewed, I would imagine. Mm. And a very challenging but ultimately successful COVID-era Australian Open has come to an end. There are a lot of mixed feelings about what has happened in, a, in the last month or so with tennis players coming to Australia. But I think when we draw a line in the end, it was a, a successful tournament. 
That was Novak Djokovic, who, of course, won the men's final last night. Uh, The Serbians now won it nine times, and they crowned him the king of the Australian Open last night. He beat uh, Russia's Daniil Medvedev 7-5, 6-2, 6-2. And it was was pretty hard to watch Medvedev crumble. He'd kind of been a man of steel throughout the tournament with incredible baseline rallies, but he was no match for Novak Djokovic, who is just so experienced in those finals and just so rock solid. Yeah, just so focused. I stayed up last night to watch it, a little bit tired this morning, but he just is a machine. You just yeah. He didn't even flinch the whole game. And Naomi Osaka beat Jennifer Brady from the US on the weekend, 6-4, 6-3, to claim the women's final as well. It's been a fascinating tournament in the COVID era, hasn't it? Yeah, it just hasn't had the same vibe around Melbourne. I've spent a lot of time in Melbourne over summers. I used to live here and now I live here again. And it's just a great vibe in the city, a lot of stuff happening, and it didn't sort of have the same attraction and appeal. I guess a lot of people aren't working in the city at the moment. Of Mm. course, we had that lockdown right in the middle, but it was great to see fans back there last night. I think it really changes the atmosphere, even if they weren't necessarily going for Djokovic. The fans (laughs) at the Oz Open love an underdog, so that's um, never, ever going to be Novak again because he's won it too many times. But (laughs) as a TV viewer, I really enjoyed it. it. It was just a fascinating cliffhanger, really. Like, was the was the hotel quarantine going to work. There were all those complaints and anticipation. Then it got off to a pretty good start. And then there was the lockdown in the middle of it. And it was like, where is this going to go? It was very weird without the fans. Then the fans came back and there were some incredible moments in those semifinals and then ultimately successful finals. So almost like a microcosm of just life during COVID and ultimately <laughs> something exciting to watch. Absolutely. All right, Annika, we'll look forward to speaking to you tomorrow. Jan Fran is about to join us as we interview the Australian scientist part of the WHO investigation in Wuhan. Hey there, it's Jan Fran here. Last month, the World Health Organization finally got a group of scientists to Wuhan to investigate the origins of the coronavirus. And one of them was an Australian virologist, Professor Dominic Dwyer, who is the New South Wales Director of Public Health Pathology. So let's find out what they discovered on this investigation we've all been waiting for, the whole world that is. We'll also find out whether it was really that independent, which is what Australia have been calling for and copping a lot of flack for. Dominic, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Set the scene for us. You get out of quarantine in Wuhan, you hit the ground to start work on this all-important task. What was it like being there and what were you doing each day? Well, look, it was uh, very, very busy. So we started off with two weeks in uh, quarantine in a hotel in China, which meant we had to do everything on Zoom. Uh, So that was fine. Uh, We mostly talking amongst ourselves, planning the work and talk, starting to talk with our Chinese collaborators. Then we moved into the situation where we were still in kind of a light quarantine when we had we could all mix together and have a meal together, but we couldn't leave the hotel. That work then was a combination of face-to-face visits to a number of approved locations that we had asked about, uh, and then also face-to-face meetings with the the Chinese team uh, on this project. So how tightly was your visit managed? Could you go wherever you wanted? Well, we asked for, uh, to go to a number of places and they allowed us to go to all of those. That included visiting uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the market where the outbreak sort of really got going and quite a number of other locations that we asked about. So we were able to do all of that. So we had no restriction on where we wanted to go 
for work. So what did you learn about the Wuhan wet market when you visited it? Well, look, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, when you actually visited the market, and it is now closed, of course, it was really easy to see how an outbreak of anything could explode there. It was you know, really small little stalls, terrible drainage, poor quality ventilation, uh, obviously very crowded. They get about, apparently used to have about 10,000 people a day visiting. So it's a perfect sort of recipe for an outbreak of something. So it's interesting to hear that you got to visit the Institute of Virology because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, the lab that we've all been wondering whether or not it was at the sort of origin of the virus. And Mm -hmm. one of the standout findings was that it was extremely unlikely that the virus did escape from the lab. So what were you able to see that gave you the confidence to make that conclusion? First of all, with laboratory escapes of, of organisms, I mean, they do occur, fortunately, uh, they're fairly rare. So worldwide, there have been a number of these in a whole range of countries, but really it's not very common. The second thing is that usually when you get a laboratory outbreak of something, the lab is growing up large amounts of virus in what we call tissue culture, but that wasn't happening at that institute with the viruses that are most closely related to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the other thing is we actually Two of the laminates are, you know, it's a terrific facility uh, for this high-level work, and they go through their own accreditation and standards checking. Uh, we also discussed with them about uh, their biosafety procedures in the laboratory and so on, and how that worked. And then, lastly, we finished up talking to the scientists that are doing work with these bat viruses that are closely related uh, to the SARS-CoV-2, but still far enough away not to be the parent virus, if you like. And, you know, to try and understand what sort of work they were doing. You know, with that sort of level of investigation, it seemed highly unlikely that this was associated with a leak. Uh, Not to say that it's completely ruled out. You know, it's always there on the table, but on the, the basis of the evidence we saw, not likely to be a problem. Yeah, I guess one of the main theories that we keep hearing is that the virus came from animals, uh, bats, Mm -hmm. pangolins. Did you find any evidence that it originated rather in any of these animals? Well, we're still looking for that, and that's going to be an ongoing sort of global issue. We know that with viruses that are in the same family as as SARS-CoV-2, such as the original SARS or MERS, which is causing problems in the Middle East. The origin usually is through some sort of intermediate animal, uh, but the origin of the virus ultimately is in bats. uh, So that, you know, the bats carry a whole range of these coronaviruses, uh, and not just in southern China, but indeed elsewhere in, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Japan, Hong Kong, as well as in Africa. Uh, So it's highly likely, based on previous experience, that the virus is there somewhere in bats. You've just got to be able to find it. And it's only in the last couple of years that we've found the origin in bats. So these sort of origin studies in terms of finding it in the original animals is a a lot of work. And then the intermediate animals like pangolins and Badgers and a whole and mink and, and so on. There's a whole range of animals that are relatively easy to infect with the virus. So again, you've got to do work in those sorts of areas. And then thirdly, you've got to do work. Well, how did it get from those animals into humans? Given your investigation on those hypotheses of, of it coming 
by bats, pangolins, other animals. Mm-hmm. You even explored the frozen food chain. The lab, as you talked about before, that was the fourth hypothesis. What is the most likely theory on how this thing started? Well, look, the most likely scenario uh, and where most work should be invested in now is really the transmission from bats somewhere into some sort of intermediate host like the the pangolins and badgers and what have you into humans and that is really the most likely hypothesis. We kind of knew that already didn't we that was our main hypothesis. Mm -hmm. In layman's terms did we learn much beyond that? Oh look I think we we learned a lot actually. We learned first of all a lot about how the virus started to circulate in Wuhan and also going back to the trail of wildlife that may, may have been sold in the market legally or illegally, we don't know. And so those pathways, a number of those have been explored and discounted. So, in fact, a lot of the questions uh, have been answered, but ultimately the final one from, you know, bat to animal to man, still those sort of ends have got to be tied together. Professor, in the last year, Australia's relationship with China has deteriorated significantly. Part of that is because Australia called for an independent inquiry into the origins of the virus. Now, this was a joint investigation with 17 Chinese experts and 17 international experts, yourself included. You Mm -hmm. did have to rely quite a bit on their preliminary research and data systems. I mean, was this the independent inquiry that we called for? Even though WHO as an international organisation were coordinating the meeting. Uh, The experts that went, you know, none of us are employed by WHO, we're all independent sort of experts and came together. So we're not beholden to WHO or to anybody else. It's all our own expertise and experience. The Chinese group uh, were the scientists doing the work and a lot of the work was work that we asked them to do in the months prior to coming to to Wuhan. So we we said, well, these are the sorts of bits of information we know. Can you supply these and get these? Uh, and they did some, you know, to be fair, some pretty amazing amount of work to answer the questions that we were posing. Dominic, can you understand that a lot of people listening would be sceptical that, you know, you had to work with Chinese scientists who are employed by the Chinese government using Chinese data collection systems paid for by the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really sound independent. And, and there'd be some people that wouldn't trust those people because there's such a vested interest in the outcome of this investigation for China, which started this virus that has damaged the whole world so intensely. Some of the data set you can see is clearly national standard surveillance for diseases of one form or another. Now, you know, whether you know, you don't trust them or not, I guess, is a, is a sort of more of a political argument than anything else. I know that in our discussions with people, uh, as you would expect with any face-to-face sort of meeting, you know, you get to know people, You, they understand what you're on about, you start to understand what they're on about. Sure, you're working through translators, sure, you're working through, you know, a complex kind of mm. political system. But, but I think the feeling was from all of us on the WHO side, and we were unanimous about this, was that they were trying really hard to show that what they were doing was fine. It's in their interest too to find out what's going on. Of course, they'd like to find blame elsewhere. So <laughs> all, go- all governments are like that. What is the next stage from here? 
Well, look, I guess for the investigation, there are two bits. One was reviewing all the, the data and so on, as we spoke about. The second part was then setting up what sort of work you need to do to take it further, yeah. what sort of yeah. ongoing origins work needs to be done, not just in China, of course, um, but indeed in the region uh, and, and elsewhere. And I think that's going to be an ongoing thing. I mean, it does take a while to sort these things out. That was virologist Professor Dominic Dwyer, who was part of the international team of scientists sent to Wuhan by the WHO. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a very exciting interview. We're speaking with uh, a senior medical director at Pfizer. Um, The rollout has started this week, so there's lots of curly questions about how that's going and why we aren't getting more doses. Maybe I'll ask him for a few more doses. That's on tomorrow's Briefing. Speak to you then. Listener.